0: The um, book of Revelation is what we're uh, preaching through. We're still in the beginning. The book of Revelation, you know, when people think of the book of Revelation, they think scary stuff, and they should. There's dragons and locusts and swords and fire and horses. There's plagues, uh, beasts coming out of the sea. A lot of weird weird sort of fantasy imagery right in the book of Revelation, some of us are thinking, okay, what is the mark of the beast? How do I make sure I don't get the mark? Uh, is, is this politician the Antichrist and, and all that kind of stuff? And we're going to get into that stuff. Uh, but it's easy to forget that in the beginning, there are seven letters to seven churches that are very practical. It's kind of hard-hitting because the purpose of the book of Revelation is not to develop some code to translate what's going on in the world purpose of revelation is to encourage the churches that that is the point so so you can take this uh, home if you're studying the book of revelation and you only feel scared or you only are thinking about what's going to happen in the world but you don't feel encouraged to endure in faithfulness you've misread the book of revelation and we know that straight out of the gate from chapter one seven small letters to seven s- small churches in Asia Minor, some of them still exist. Some of them don't anymore because the place doesn't exist. Um, but in this time, these were seven actual churches. It's, it's young. They're still in the first century. And Jesus wants them to endure. No church wants to close its doors. The problem is some churches, they see we're shrinking, we're small, we, want, we need to be bigger, we don't want to close our doors, so what do we do? And so they use tactics, strategies that, you know, may or may not look like they work. They want to hire the young pastor. He's got to be like 30 years old. Because if he's too young, he's not educated or experienced enough. But if he's too old, he won't attract young families. Young families bring in money, energy, and activity. So you need the young pastor. And this is me peeling back the veil on what goes on with church pastor searches and what, you know, churches are saying about what they need. We need the big dynamic youth group. We need the rip roaring band so that people come. They might hate the sermon, but they're going to come for the music. We just need people to come because the bottom line is something else besides what the bottom line is supposed to be. It might be money. Okay, it's usually money (laughs) because that's what attendance brings. Okay, so we've talked about those kinds of the the wrong ways to go about surviving as a church because a church can still have its doors open, but in Christ's view, it's closed. It's not a lampstand anymore. It's a building on the side of the road with maybe a 501c3 and some staff. For Jesus, he wants the churches to survive, uh, spiritually speaking, to not be dead spiritually, whether they have a building or not. And when Jesus does that, he, he prefaces those seven letters with a vision of himself. You remember that? John sees a vision of Jesus, and he's glowing, literally. I mean, his eyes are fire, his hair is white wool, his clothing is, is bright, he, he, his feet are brown, refined bronze, right? So it's all this imagery of Christ's purity. He is pure. And then each of the seven letters... He takes a piece of that vision and reminds the church that he is not the, the surfboarding dude bro Jesus on, you know, T-shirts that we see sometimes. He is, he is an image that if we saw it, we'd fall on our face just like John did, just like Daniel did. Um, he is big. I mean, not physically, right? But he's, he's weighty. He's glorious. He's full of splendor. And when you confront the real Jesus, uh, you have to make a decision. Do I do things his way or not? And so to keep a church thriving is not just to keep the doors open. To keep a church thriving, to endure all the way to the end, is to make sure we are focused on who Jesus is, not our version of Jesus, but who Jesus says he is, the way Jesus presents himself. Turn with me to Revelation If you're not there already, Revelation chapter 2. And we're just moving one church at a time. Uh, When we get to the rest of the book of Revelation, we'll take kind of bigger chunks. But right now, we're just going to take one church at a time. And today, we're starting in verse 12, the letter to the church at Pergamum. The letter to the church at Pergamum. Like I said, before he gets into this stuff, right, of what he wants them to do or stop doing, or what he thinks they're doing great, It begins with a piece of that prior vision, and the piece that he chooses for this one is that Jesus holds a sharp two-edged sword, a sharp two-edged sword. And so the angel of the church at Pergamum writes, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. If this is your first time joining us and you wonder why I skipped some things, go back to the earlier ones. I talked about the angel, for instance, in a prior sermon. So we're just going one at a time, and you can find that on our website. So here's what he wants them to remember. Before he tells them what he thinks they're doing great, before he tells them what the, the corrections that they need, he reminds them that he, Jesus Christ, holds a sharp two-edged sword. The imagery there with the sword is one of judgment. It's one of judgment. Now, this is why Paul reminds the Romans that the, uh, the government, Romans 13, the government doesn't hold the sword for nothing. Why does the government hold a sword? Okay, Because the government has the ability to exact justice uh, follow through with judgment okay so jesus yes he's glorious and he's full of splendor and he's pure and he's righteous he's faithful he's true but he holds a sword and he doesn't want his churches to just do whatever they want he can bring that sword to bear on the church not a physical sword necessarily this is imagery he's channeling his his ownership we could say his ownership his right to judge the church so that's where the the enduring church any church that endures to the end it's not because they figured out the antichrist it's because jesus is in charge that's that's what the church needs to be focused on jesus is this perfectly righteous judge and catch this he doesn't just wait till the end of time to go well let's see how you did Isn't it marvelous that Jesus steps in now to tell the church, hey, when you get there, here's what I'm looking for. It's like the teacher that's like, hey, tomorrow's exam is going to be this. You'd be an an imbecile to not write that down. The teacher is telling you on tomorrow's exam, this is going to be a question, right? Sometimes that explicitly a professor would say it. Some of you are like, I wish I had that professor. I don't know. It was very rare. But once in a while, a teacher would say, this is going to be on the exam. Jesus isn't like passive aggressive like I hope the church figures it out and then at the end I'm gonna whip out the sword and be like you should have known should I have well yeah we should have because he does tell us okay he does tell us so he's not the parent waiting at the end of the week to be like here's all the chores that you didn't figure out he's coaching along the way don't forget today's chore is this so that at the end of the week you don't get in trouble he doesn't want the church to fail he wants the church to succeed and so he's Flashing the sword, not to say, I hope I can get you. He's flashing the sword to say, pass the test. Pass the test, continue. Further, he doesn't even begin with the negative stuff. He does appreciate the things that a church does well. And this church is doing well on some counts. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Okay, so here's what he likes about the church at Pergamum. What he likes about the church at Pergamum is they are stalwart. They are in a place where they are surrounded by pressure to worship idols. There's tons of idols and temples. And in fact, in per- Pergamum had a temple specifically for Caesar worship. So it was a little easier to see when Christians didn't show up to that. okay? And then they'd get hauled off into courts, and especially under Domitian's reign, that started becoming uh, a problem again. And you see where Jesus calls the place where they live. I know where you dwell, and he doesn't mean I know your geographical longitude and latitude. I know that you dwell where Satan lives. And that's weird, right? So we we could take this and go, oh Satan, where's today's where's Pergamum today? Because I'm definitely not going to travel there. I'm not even going to allow my airplane to fly over that demonic place, that's satanic. Or you know, what is it? Full of haunted houses? You know, no. Notice the reason why he says it's the focus. We could say the headquarters of satanic activity is oppression against the church. So he he's not asking the church to. Um, you know, read the cloud shapes in the sky and try to figure out where Satan is right now. Where is he right now? Okay, we're safe. I think he's in the Middle East right now. We're okay in America. It's where the church is being killed. Um, that's, that's Satan's agenda. And as you continue to read, the dragon trying to kill the woman, like what's going on? That's what's going on. So this is sort of Jesus explaining what's happening so that later when you read all the weird imagery, you're like, oh, okay, I get, I get what's happening. You know, Satan wants to close the church. He wants to shut it down. And one of the ways he'll do that is to threaten life. We talked about that last week, that if we just kind of allow ourselves to view the church a little more globally, we'll see that oppression of the church is not sometime in the future, and it's not just for Christians that lived in, under Roman rule in the past, but right now, probably while I'm speaking, Christians are being arrested, hauled off, even executed separated from their families, put into starvation situations Nigeria, North Korea. We can go on and on. So we talked about that last week. So he commends them. You guys are, you're, you're faithful. And he even calls out one guy. We don't know who Antipas is, but he gets to live in scripture, right? Because of his faithfulness, even in the days of Antipas. So they're thinking back to somebody who was a faithful witness and for his faithful witness was killed. He was killed for his faithful witness. All you have to do is deny Christ, say Caesar is Lord, you're fine. You don't do that, they kill you. So they're not doing that. Now that is a courageous church, isn't it? That's a courageous church. Like I said last week, if if you knew that showing up next week would mean never seeing your family again, how many of us would show up? Antipas would. And it seems like this church at Pergamum, they would too. They're, he's saying, you guys are faithful. He's not correcting them. This isn't a spank. It's not a, it's not a rebuke. You guys are courageous. You're stalwart. You've got all this outside pressure, and you don't live on the fringes. You live right in the thick of, of the satanic activity of attacking the church. I know what you're experiencing, and that you don't deny the faith. If, if, they, if they pull out a sword and hold it to your neck, you won't deny the faith. That is amazing. Now, interestingly, how can a church that courageous still have problems? How can a church that brave, that, you know, holding fast to the faith to that extent can still have issues? I I don't know about you, I find that fascinating. I'm like, to me, you're just a superstar. If you're so faithful to the point where, take my life, whatever, man, I am not denying Christ. How can you have other issues? Well, you can, because this church did. So he knows where they dwell. They dwell where Satan dwells. And and let me just pause there again. Uh, You see that repetition of dwells. I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan dwells. And the two don't coincide well. Unless the church is quiet. Unless the church changes their views. Unless the church compromises. But if you don't, it's a problem. And the two conflict. You're right in the heat of this activity. But you're, you're holding out. You're holding fast. But, verse 14, I have a few things against you. It's not enough that you withstand the pressures from outside the church. You need to make sure you withstand the pressures from inside the church. You're really good at, at withstanding what's going on out there, but you're not doing so hot with what's going on in here. You know, So when you look at these churches, this is the third church in the lineup, The first church, Ephesus, they had really good doctrine. You remember that? Hey, your doctrine's great. You've lost your first love, though. So good, keep the good doctrine, but you need to be practicing those love-driven works that you did in the beginning. Then when you saw the second church, Smyrna, which we looked at last week, they're willing to die for their faith, and there's no rebuke. You're willing to die for your faith. Now, you might be tempted to go, yeah, all you have to do is be a church that is so willing to die for their faith, you get no rebukes. But then you get Pergamum, and he's like, you're also willing to die for your church, but your problem is where Ephesus was doing right. They were holding to sound doctrine, and you're losing it a little bit. So again, Jesus is not like, all all I care about is how much you love me. I don't care what you believe. Scripture never makes that division. What we believe and loving Jesus go together. Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. What are those commandments? Oops, you just did theology. What does he say? What does he expect? So loving Jesus, loving doctrine, should be the same. You can love doctrine and not love Jesus. You can love doctrine and lose that first love. We saw that with the first church. But you see how this church has a particular issue. Interestingly, I think, brave, just like Smyrna, they they are not going to be told what to do or what to believe by the government. You can kill us if you need to. Seems like Antipas was already somebody in their past that was just an amazing example that they continue to walk in those footsteps. Then in verse 14, I have a few things against you. You have some there in your congregation who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. We'll get to that in a second. So that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you hold you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans and then he doesn't describe what the Nicolaitans did he's like you know who they are okay you have false teaching you have false teaching in the church and this is an issue you can be courageous you can be brave you can be stalwart you can be countercultural but then miss what's going on inside your own congregation For Balaam, you know, you'd have to go back to uh, the book of Numbers, which we also went through as a congregation, the book of Numbers. You can go back and I think I did the whole Balaam story in one sermon. And I was going back this week and I was like, I don't remember how I did that because it's a lot of material. And we probably skipped a lot of stuff, honestly. But here's the the basic sketch. Balaam is um, he's he's like a, a, a mercenary prophet. okay, a prophet for hire. Balak, uh, the king of Moab, sees Israel growing and growing. He's scared of Israel. He wants to take Israel out, but he's, he doesn't think he has the ability to unless, unless something spiritual happens, like they're cursed, okay? So he consults. It's like a king consulting a wizard. Will you cast a spell on these people so that I can attack them? That's basically what, what happens. He goes up to Balaam, and he's like, I need you to stand on a mountain, overlook these Israelites, and curse them so that I can then attack them. Curse them with what? I don't know. But weaken them so I can attack them. Balaam's like, all right, let me see what I can do. And then God shows up and he's like, you better not do that. They're blessed. So Balaam tells Balak, hey, I can't do do it. And Balaam actually says, the Lord, my God, says I can't do it. So Balaam's a weird, he's a weird dude. Is he a a believer? Is he not? We, We don't really know. He's a mixed bag, but he's a messed up guy who would curse Israel. He would take the money that the king would offer him, but he can't because God's blocking him. Okay, so that's what's happening in the Old Testament. And here's the point. Balaam couldn't curse Israel, so what Balaam did was he used the Moabite women to entice the Israelite men to get with them and then adopt their gods, uh, worship their gods, worship in their temples, commingle their family. That's called syncretism. Throughout the Bible, you see this plaguing God's people. Syncretism is when two colliding belief systems are mixed. Two opposing ethics, two opposing practices or principles are just smashed together, syncretized. Okay? They don't get along. They're just forced to get along. They're actually opposing each other. It's like that coexist sticker you see on the back of uh, foresters. I don't know. I'm sorry if you own a force. I actually like Subaru. But, but the coexistence thing, if you really look at those individual religions, they don't really... The, the only way you can live together on that sticker is if you compromise and dilute the thing that that thing is. It, it just is. It's not each one being a jerk. It's just each one being true to what that religion teaches. But syncretism is like, pay no attention to that. Let's just take the stuff I like out of this one, take the stuff I like out of this one, and smash them together for something livable for me. So Balaam knew, I can't curse them, but I can get them to curse themselves. I can't attack them from the outside, but I can infiltrate them with syncretism from the inside and so weaken them that now the Moabite king can have his way. So John, delivering this message, writing it that he received from Jesus, Jesus is saying, verse 14 You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. I don't think this meant that Balaam had some writings and they had Balaam Bible studies. He's just saying what they're doing is basically what Balaam was doing. What what they're doing is basically what Balaam, uh, it's the same ploy, it's the same tactic, it's the same scheme. right? You're not getting attacked from the outside, good job, but you're being infiltrated from the inside. So it's actually the perfect analogy for what's happening in that church and what happens to churches oftentimes. Notice it was a stumbling block that was put before the sons of Israel, not the curse, but enticing them to eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Often throughout Scripture, those two went hand in hand, and it did in the Old Testament. Uh, you remember, you might remember the episode where Phineas grabs a spear and spears a couple. <laughs> um, violent stuff. But he's going, man, we are not doing this anymore. We cannot continue the syncretism stuff. We have to purify the place. So he's channeling that entire episode in the Old Testament and saying basically you have modern day uh, Balaam's coming into the church and going, hey, I know you guys were taught this, but if you kind of delete a couple of these things, keep this part and then add this other part, this is other stuff that we can do. And probably, literally, idolatry because they're surrounded by all this idolatry so imagine a family going, hey, you can date my daughter, but and I don't mind you worshiping Jesus, but you have to also say Caesar's Lord, though, because we're a Roman family. Or you also have to adopt these gods here. She'll adopt Jesus, but you have to adopt these gods, and we'll just mix and match. You know, We'll kind of commingle the whole thing. And oftentimes that leads to unfettered morality. Does it only lead to sexual immorality? No. Is sexual immorality... Involved, It specifically was involved in these temple cults, yes. But oftentimes if people are going to delete some things from Christianity in order to compromise and embrace something else, it often involves that category, okay? Um, it's too tempting. There's freedom in that. It's too choking to, to be chaste and to have these traditional definitions of what sexuality is supposed to be. That's, that's just so confining. Uh, freedom. Let's cast that off. And then you'll hear people saying, well, Jesus didn't address that issue. You know how some Bibles have red letters just for what Jesus said? Have you ever seen that? It's almost like they're like, well, if it's not a red letter, then it's a black letter. If Jesus didn't verbally say it, then it's kind of like all this other stuff that Jesus was like, meh. The Old Testament, eh. Notice he's going, the Old Testament, read it, because that's exactly what's happening in your congregation now. The New Testament doesn't delete the Old Testament. It confirms it and applies it. So what's going on here? Were they actually sacrificing, eating foods that are sacrificed to idols? Yeah, probably. In relation to that, were they practicing sexual immorality? Yeah, probably. But what is the underlying problem? The underlying problem is syncretism, or compromise, or the mixing, the merging, okay, of dark with light, of what Jesus says mixed with things that Jesus says not to do. And because they mix those things, they're in trouble. And Jesus says, I'll I'll bring a sword. You need to fix this. You need to fix this. Not just the problems from outside the church. You need to look inside the church and make sure you've got those things fixed as well. And I want you to note that the beginning of it is false teaching. Christians are too biblically minded usually for somebody to come up to them and be like, hey, you should come over here and practice sexual immorality. It usually begins the way Satan began in the garden. He's not, hey, bite the fruit. It's, did God really say that? Change of doctrine, then the sin. Change what you believe, make an allowance, now you're free to do it. And then we can excuse ourselves like, well, I did the Bible study, I checked some notes, this guy's a published author, I saw his YouTubes. Yeah, man, there's false teachers on YouTube. <laughs> They're not only false teachers on YouTube. Well, how do you discern the difference? Well, that does take work. So let me just say this really quickly. Uh, some have commended to churches the, the task of doing a sort of a theological triage, okay? Uh, maybe you've seen it in movies. There's some big disaster in the ER room. It's kind of separating people from they're really about to die. They can kind of hold off a little bit. These people just throw some bandages on them, and they can make it. You know what I'm talking about? All right, because then I'm about to start recommending some shows to you all. Okay, so you're triaging the people uh, so that you can figure out what needs most attention, what kind of takes medium attention, and then what is... It's not unimportant, but, you know, it's not as crucial as that that first piece. And it could be a little slippery, a little dangerous, and people, you know, don't always agree on which bucket to put each doctrine in, okay? Um, but maybe if you're thinking about whether churches should use only hymns or is it okay to use modern music look that's just way over here okay is jesus truly god yeah that's the first bucket and how do we decide which is pastor lucas favorite which are the ones that we like to talk about no we decide because when you look at scripture certain things are emphasized over and over and they they have clear scripture behind them Some other things people get real hot and bothered about. The scripture's not really clear. It's like one flimsy verse, and if you look it up in the Koine Greek and then flip it backwards and then do the numerical math, and maybe you get to that thing. That's like, man, that's not, that is not on the level of who Jesus said he is, okay? So you can do this triaging, and another way to do the triaging of what's really important for a church to put their foot down and go, that is false teaching, and we're not tolerating that here, is historical precedent. You know, if somebody comes into the church and like, hey, for 2,000 years, no one ever came up with this. But I was reading my Bible last night. I saw this new guy on TikTok, and actually, this is what's true. Forget what the church has said for 2,000 years. This is what's true. It's like, nah, I don't think so. We don't just throw away history of interpretation because now we're on the scene. Okay, it's sort of a, a chronological snobbery, as some have put it. To just assume everyone in the past, they're dumb. We have all the tech. We have better education. Actually, we don't. Honestly, we don't have better education. That's another message. So there are things that Scripture is clear enough on for the church to say, that's a problem. And look, if it's leading to immorality, we know that there's, there's something went wrong there, and you can usually trace it back to some point of teaching. A false doctrine, a false teaching, a misunderstanding that was applied in a way uh, that creates some kind of allowance for us to really do, do what we want. It's really the breaking of the second commandment. The first commandment is to worship another God, not to worship another God. The second commandment is to worship the right God in your way. Fashion him into the image that you want to. Grave, grave, you know, take some engraving and, and as you're carving it, make it into the God that is sort of palatable for you. Usually that involves syncretism because you're borrowing things from other ideas, other thoughts, what you want it to be. The Bible's a little ugly, but there's a lot of good parts. Let me just chop off the stuff I don't like. Now you're shaping and fashioning God or Jesus into the person you want him to be. And when churches do that, churches shrivel and die, at least spiritually although you see the direction of mainline denominations as they make these compromises. Where are they at? Where where are they? You just look up the numbers on those things. Therefore, Jesus says, what are they supposed to do? Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So you repent or I'll war against them. You versus them. Here's why this is important. I'll do this real quickly. He's not telling the false teachers to repent. He's telling the church to repent, and if the church doesn't repent, I'm going to go after the false teachers, you versus them. You see that? And I think the reason why that's important is because the call to repentance is not the false teachers, but the people that sit around tolerating it, right? And he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to go after them. How's he going to go after them? I don't know. I don't want it. I don't want any of that. You think of 1 Corinthians 11? When they're all just, you know, rushing ahead into communion, I messed up and I didn't bring the tray over. Why? Let's just pause. No rush. Let's just make sure everybody has what they need. Why? Because in the church in Corinth, they're kicking each other out of the way and they're stuffing bread down their face. And then some of them started getting sick. Some of them even died. God's judgment on them. Now, I don't. I don't. I don't know when somebody's sick, if that's God doing it, that takes a lot to discern. And I'm not saying every time somebody's sick, it's God doing it. What I'm saying is I would rather be corrected by the church than the church ignore it. And then I've got to deal directly with Christ. That's the bigger problem. And Jesus is punting it and giving the church a chance to be the ones to come alongside somebody and go, Hey, I know you saw that on YouTube or whatever, but it's not correct. Let's look at scripture and let's fix that. Let's correct that rather than ignoring it Because all our attention is on the bad guys out there. All our attention is on the government coming and taking our guns and stoves, right? Rather than looking in here and going, okay, that's important to think about, you know, how am I, you know, resisting pressure to deny my faith out there? Not that guns and stoves have anything to do with that, but just this big, scary, bad guy government, right? But then in here, we're like, well, look, he's a consistent brother, and he comes to church, and he comes to growth group. He's got some really weird views on the deity of Christ, but whatever, no, not whatever, right? Not whatever is Jesus' point. So he wants the church to repent. How? By doing something about it and not tolerating those things. That doesn't mean you have to be nasty or ugly, but you come alongside these people to try to encourage them. If they won't be corrected, they need to be um, told that they're not teaching the truth. So there's to to repent where he comes with the sword. And then verse 17 he ends with this encouragement. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We unpacked that last week. To the one who conquers, I will give him hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one except the one no one knows except the one who receives it. And you're like, man, he waited all this time to unpack this. I think this takes an hour. I'm not going to do an hour on this. You know why? We don't know what it means. Exactly. I think we have a general understanding of what it is. I'm not going to stand up here and give you 15 views on the white stone. I just, to me, that's just a waste of time for a sermon, okay? But let me give you a couple options and what I think it uh, is getting at here. With the hidden manna, where did he just take you? He took you to the Old Testament when they were surviving in the wilderness and resisting the, the wiles of Balaam and, um, and the Moabite king, right? So he's just saying, you know how I provided for them? They didn't see my provision of manna as enough and they went to the Moabites for more stuff. Don't do that. Just stick with what I'm giving you. Jesus taught us to pray, give me this day my daily bread. That's the manna. He supplies it. Why is it hidden? Because he doesn't give it to everybody. And as we press through Revelation, you see this sort of layer of secret, that this, this hidden thing from the world that everyone doesn't see. Everyone doesn't see the dragon. They just see politics. Everyone doesn't see lampstands they just see church buildings right there's sort of an invisible there's like an x-ray view that the book of revelation is giving you You put it on and you can see things that other people don't see and i think that's what it's talking about when he's talking about this manna that isn't given to everybody it's it's not hidden from them he's giving it to them he's he's not hiding his his word from you he's giving it to you and then the white stone is an encouragement We know it's an encouragement because he's—it's a promise he's holding out. Hey, if you conquer, I'm going to give you this great thing. So it can't be a negative thing. We know that—that's clear. But it has a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's two options. That's either a new name that he's giving the Christian, or it's Christ's name that is new to you, but not everyone knows that name. Either way, I think the the stone—the whiteness of the stone—is purity. You're pure. You've shown that you're pure you are mine, you're a shining lampstand, I'm the pure one, and you're one of mine, so you're white. Later we see the saints wearing white linen garments and things like that. Okay, white, Jesus rides a white horse. White means purity. And written on the stone is a name. If I had to pick one, I'd say Jesus' name, because when you get to chapter 19, Jesus is riding that horse, and he has a name that no one knows, and then he tells us what the name is. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. Not everyone knows it, but they will when he comes riding the white horse. Right now, not everyone knows it. Who knows it? The conquerors, the ones who endure, the ones who make it to the end. They're the ones who really know Christ for who he is, and they know his name. I think that's what that means, but at any rate, it's an encouragement to endure to the end, and enduring to the end doesn't just require holding off oppression from the outside, but making sure that what's going on in here is tried and true, tested against Scripture, and that we understand as best we can what he's telling us to do in Scripture. When you go into growth groups this week, and I hope you do, if you haven't joined one, I, I, I hope you, you'd find one. Um, I want you to notice the, the sort of format that we do in the growth groups. The first few questions, we change the questions out so I don't have them memorized, but I know the first two, three questions, we tend to make those textual questions. What does the text say? What's something parallel? What's something opposite? What did you discover when you looked at the text this week? I don't care if you remember the sermon, the text. Okay? They're text-based Bible studies, not sermon-based Bible studies, because I don't care if you remember even who I am, right? But the text, we want to look at that first. Then the questions start going little by little toward, hey, how do we live this out? You could chop off that first part and just go straight to how do we live this out? What's the problem with that? When we begin with life application, when you're studying by yourself, I'm going to read the Bible through this year. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Let's see. I don't know. That's boring. That, that's the wrong way to go about it. And that's an easy way for sneaky stuff to start getting in there because we start shaping it into what we want it to say rather than first asking what does it say and then conforming my life to that. So even the order of questions in a Bible study, right?, as a way to um, make sure that we're trying our best uh, by God's grace to be the kind of enduring church that John calls us to be. Who is Jesus? And let me follow him for who he is. And we need to make sure that inside the church that people are getting that. And when they're not, we need to be vocal and come alongside. Uh, it might be ignorance. Uh, it might be that they just don't know. But We need to be vocal about it because false doctrine leads to immorality and judgment let's pray together father we do need you um it's difficult uh to as i said sort of triage all these things and some things may not be as clear as others but things are clear and we just sometimes lack the the motivation to um to be clear about those things that you're clear about so we pray that we would think about the basics of christianity um, the tried and true doctrines that churches throughout history have, have held to, and to not be so naive as to think that, hey, everybody just believes this automatically, but that we need to kind of work at it and protect it and learn it. Um, and more than that, Father, I pray that we would see fruit from it, that we wouldn't just be doctrinal nerds, but we would actually have lives that change, that our, our attitude is different, um, that our um, spirits are raised and encouraged because of the truths that we hold, that we wouldn't lose our first love um, and that we would make sure that love drives everything that we believe, everything that we do as a church. As we close in this song, uh, would you encourage it uh, in our hearts, Father, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.